Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Dialogue, Protagoras, Part 2 And now let us go, as we were intending, and hear Protagoras. And when we have heard what he has to say, we may take counsel of others. For not only is Protagoras at the house of Callias, but there is Hippias of Aelus, and, if I am not mistaken, Prodicus of Chaos, and several other wise men. To this we agreed, and proceeded on our way until we reached the vestibule of the house, and there we stopped in order to conclude a discussion which had arisen between us as we were going along. And we stood talking in the vestibule until we had finished and come to an understanding. And I think that the doorkeeper, who was a eunuch, and who was probably annoyed at the great inroad of the sophists, must have heard us talking. At any rate, when we knocked at the door and he opened and saw us, he grumbled. They are sophists. He is not at home, and instantly gave the door a hearty bang with both his hands. Again we knocked, and he answered without opening. Did you not hear me say that he is not at home, fellows? But, my friend, I said, you need not be alarmed, for we are not sophists, and we are not come to see Callias, but we want to see Protagoras, and I must request you to announce us. At last, after a good deal of difficulty, the man was persuaded to open the door. When we entered, we found Protagoras taking a walk in the cloister, and next to him on one side were walking Callias, the son of Hipponicus, and Paralus, the son of Pericles, who, by the mother's side, is his half-brother, and Carmides, the son of Glaucon. On the other side of him were Xanthippus, the other son of Pericles, Philippides, the son of Philomelus, also Antimerus of Menda, who of all the disciples of Protagoras is the most famous, and intends to make sophistry his profession. A train of listeners followed him. The greater part of them appeared to be foreigners, whom Protagoras had brought with him out of the various cities visited by him in his journeys. He, like Orpheus, attracting them his voice, and they following. I should mention also that there were some Athenians in the company. Nothing delighted me more than the precision of their movements. They never got into his way at all. But when he and those who were with him turned back, then the band of listeners parted regularly on either side. He was always in front, and they wheeled round and took their places behind him in perfect order. After him, as Homer says, I lifted up my eyes and saw Hippias the Elian, sitting in the opposite cloister on a chair of state, and around him were seated on benches Eryximachus, the son of Acumenus, and Phaedrus, the Myrhinusian, and Andron, the son of Androdion, and there were strangers whom he had brought with him from his native city of Elis, and some others. They were putting to Hippias certain physical and astronomical questions, and he, ex cathedra, was determining their several questions to them, and discoursing of them. Also, my eyes beheld Tantalus. For Prodicus the Chaean was at Athens. He had been lodged in a room which, in the days of Hipponicus, was a storehouse. But as the house was full, Callias had cleared this out and made the room into a guest chamber. Now Prodicus was still in bed, wrapped up in sheepskins and bedclothes, of which there seemed to be a great heap. 
and there was sitting by him on the couches near, Pausanias, of the deem of Carameus. And with Pausanias was a youth quite young, who is certainly remarkable for his good looks, and, if I am not mistaken, is also of a fair and gentle nature. I thought that I heard him called Agathon, and my suspicion is that he is the beloved of Pausanias. There was this youth, and also there were the two Adamantuses, one the son of Capus, and the other of Lucolophides, and some others. I was very anxious to hear what Prodicus was saying, for he seems to me to be an all-wise and inspired man. But I was not able to get into the inner circle, and his fine, deep voice made an echo in the room which rendered his words inaudible. No sooner had we entered, than there followed us Alcibiades the Beautiful, as you say, and I believe you, and also Critias the son of Chilascris. On entering, we stopped a little in order to look about us, and then walked up to Protagoras, and I said, Protagoras, my friend Hippocrates, and I have come to see you. Do you wish, he said, to speak with me alone, or in the presence of the company? Whichever you please, I said. You shall determine when you have heard the purpose of our visit. And what is your purpose, he said. I must explain, I said, that my friend Hippocrates is a native Athenian. He is the son of Apollodorus, and of a great and prosperous house, and he is himself in natural ability quite a match for anybody of his own age. I believe that he aspires to political eminence, and this, he thinks, that conversation with you is most likely to procure for him. And now you can determine whether you would wish to speak to him of your teaching alone, or in the presence of the company. Thank you, Socrates, for your consideration of me, for certainly a stranger finding his way into great cities, and persuading the flower of the youth in them to leave company of their kinsmen, or any other acquaintances, old or young, and live with him, under the idea that they will be improved by his conversation, ought to be very cautious. Great jealousies are aroused by his proceedings, and he is the subject of many enmities and conspiracies. Now the art of the sophist is, as I believe, of great antiquity. But in ancient times those who practiced it, fearing this odium, veiled and disguised themselves under various names. Some under that of poets, as Homer, Hesiod, and Simonides. Some of Hierophants and Prophets, as Orpheus and Musaeus, and some, as I observe, even under the name of gymnastic masters, like Icus of Tarentum, or the more recently celebrated Herodicus, now of Salimbria, and formerly of Megara, who is a first-rate sophist. Your own Agathocles pretended to be a musician, but was really an eminent sophist. Also, Pythocleides the Chian, and there were many others and all of them, as I was saying, adopted these arts as veils, or disguises, because they were afraid of the odium which they would incur. But that is not my way, for I do not believe that they effected their purpose, which was to deceive the government, who were not blinded by them. And as to the people, they have no understanding, and only repeat what their rulers are pleased to tell them. Now to run away, and to be caught in running away, is the very height of folly, and also greatly increases the exasperation of mankind, for they regard him who runs away as a rogue, in addition to any other objections which they have to him. And therefore, I take an entirely opposite course, 
and acknowledge myself to be a sophist and instructor of mankind. Such an open acknowledgement appears to me to be a better sort of caution than concealment, nor do I neglect other precautions. And therefore I hope, as I may say, by the favor of heaven, that no harm will come of the acknowledgement that I am a sophist, and I have been now many years in the profession, for all my years when added up are many. There is no one here present of whom I might not be the father. Wherefore, I should much prefer conversing with you, if you want to speak with me, in the presence of the company. As I suspected that he would like to have a little display and glorification in the presence of Prodicus and Hippias, and would gladly show us them in the light of his admirers, I said, But why should we not summon Prodicus and Hippias and their friends to hear us? Very good, he said. Suppose, said Callias, that we hold a council in which you may sit and discuss. This was agreed upon, and great delight was felt at the prospect of hearing wise men talk. We ourselves took the chairs and benches and arranged them by Hippias, where the other benches had been already placed. Meanwhile, Callias and Alcibiades got Prodicus out of bed and brought him in and his companions. When we were all seated, Protagoras said, Now that the company are assembled, Socrates, tell me about the young man of whom you were just now speaking. I replied, I will begin again at the same point, Protagoras, and tell you once more the purport of my visit. This is my friend Hippocrates, who is desirous of making your acquaintance. He would like to know what will happen to him if he associates with you. I have no more to say. Protagoras answered, Young man, if you associate with me, on the very first day you will return home a better man than you came, and better on the second day than on the first, and better every day than you were on the day before. When I heard this, I said, Protagoras, I do not at all wonder at hearing you say this. Even at your age, and with all your wisdom, if anyone were to teach you what you did not know before, you would become better, no doubt. But please to answer in a different way. I will explain how by an example. Let me suppose that Hippocrates, instead of desiring your acquaintance, wished to become acquainted with the young man Zeuxippus of Heraclea, who has lately been in Athens. And he had come to him as he has come to you, and had heard him say, as he has heard you say, that every day he would grow and become better if he associated with him, and then suppose that he were to ask him, In what shall I become better, and in what shall I grow? Zeuxippus would answer, In painting. And suppose that he went to Orthagoras, the Theban, and heard him say the same thing, and asked him, In what shall I become better day by day? He would reply, In flute-playing. Now, I want you to make the same sort of answer to this young man and to me, who am asking questions on his account. When you say that on the first day on which he associates with you, he will return home a better man, and on every day will grow in like manner, in what, Protagoras, will he be better, and about what? When Protagoras heard me say this, he replied, You ask questions fairly and I like to answer a question which is fairly put. If Hippocrates comes to me, he will not experience the sort of drudgery with which other sophists are in the habit of insulting their pupils, who, when they have just escaped from the arts, 
are taken and driven back into them by these teachers, and are made to learn calculation, and astronomy, and geometry, and music. He gave a look at Hippias as he said this. But if he comes to me, he will learn that which he comes to learn. And this is prudence in affairs private as well as public. He will learn to order his own house in the best manner, and he will be able to speak and act for the best in the affairs of the state. Do I understand you, I said, and is your meaning that you teach the art of politics and that you promise to make men good citizens? That, Socrates, is exactly the profession which I make. Then, I said, you do indeed possess a noble art, if there is no mistake about this. For I will freely confess to you, Protagoras, that I have a doubt whether this art is capable of being taught, and yet I know not how to disbelieve your assertion. And I ought to tell you why I am of opinion that this art cannot be taught or communicated by man to man. I say that the Athenians are an understanding people, and indeed they are esteemed to be such by the other Hellenes. Now I observe that when we are met together in the assembly, and the matter in hand relates to building, the builders are summoned as advisers. When the question is one of shipbuilding, then the shipwrights, and the like of other arts which they think capable of being taught and learned. And if some person offers to give them advice who is not supposed by them to have any skill in the art, even though he be good-looking, and rich, and noble, they will not listen to him, but laugh and hoot at him, until either he is clamored down and retires of himself, or, if he persist, he is dragged away, or put out by the constables at the command of the Pritanes. This is their way of behaving about professors of the arts. But when the question is an affair of state, then everybody is free to have a say. Carpenter, tinker, cobbler, sailor, passenger. Rich and poor, high and low. Anyone who likes gets up, and no one reproaches him, as in the former case, with not having learned, and having no teacher, and yet giving advice. Evidently, because they are under the impression that this sort of knowledge cannot be taught. And not only is this true of the state, but of individuals. The best and wisest of our citizens are unable to impart their political wisdom to others. As, for example, Pericles, the father of these young men, who gave them excellent instruction in all that could be learned from masters. In his own department of politics, neither taught them nor gave them teachers, but they were allowed to wander at their own free will in a sort of hope that they would shed light upon virtue of their own accord. Or take another example. There was Cleinias, the younger brother of our friend Alcibiades, of whom this very same Pericles was the guardian, and he being in fact under the apprehension that Cleinias would be corrupted by Alcibiades, took him away, and placed him in the house of Ariphron to be educated. But before six months had elapsed, Ariphron sent him back, not knowing what to do with him and I could mention numberless other instances of persons who were good themselves, and never yet made anyone else good, whether friend or stranger. Now I, Protagoras, having these examples before me, am inclined to think that virtue cannot be taught. But then again, when I listen to your words, I waver, 
and am disposed to think that there must be something in what you say, because I know that you have great experience, and learning, and invention. And I wish that you would, if possible, show me a little more clearly that virtue can be taught. Will you be so good? That I will, Socrates, and gladly. But what would you like? Shall I, as an elder, speak to you as younger men in an apologue or myth, or shall I argue out the question? To this several of the company answered that he should choose for himself. Well then, he said, I think that the myth will be more interesting. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.